Amen. Remain standing for the reading of God's Word today, found in Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 8. However, I think I'm going to back up to the previous context so we can get a running start, but our text this morning will be found from verses 8 through 10. Chapter 9, verse 37, he begins, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray, the Lord of the harvest, to send out labors into the harvest. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast out and heal all kinds of sicknesses and kinds of diseases. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. Let us pray. Gracious Father, open our eyes and our hearts today to the principles that are outlined in kernel form here in this passage and may you encourage us and strengthen us and strengthen our faith to trust you more readily and more speedily and pray that you would give us guidance also as a church corporately how to be more engaged and involved in missions. And we pray the Spirit of God would make application to us individually and corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're in a section of Scripture that has some very kernel principles for the mission and church planting, and for the ministry. And we will see some of these principles even further developed after Pentecost in the mission work and the establishing of churches. I'd like to just go back through it in a matter of summary and just quickly go through some of these things we've already considered. Number one, there are many people in this world who are distressed and disquieted. And that's what he was pointing out or the Matthew was pointing out there in verses 36. And that he looked upon these people without a shepherd. These people are distressed in this fallen dark world because they have no shepherd. And there are many who are this way. The second thing that we considered was in respect of that, the labors are actually very few. So number three, therefore the first thing we are instructed by Jesus to do about this problem in the world is to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would raise up laborers. And then we saw, in direct connection with that prayer that he told and bid his disciples to do, that he then calls the twelve disciples to himself. In fact, any time we pray, we need to have a perspective that God will use us as part of the answer to the very pray, praying that we pray. And we must always be ready to be a part of that answer no matter how he calls us to do. So be careful what you pray for and how you pray. But be 
even more so, be sincere in what you pray. Number four, God answers those prayers and calling those, and yet not only calling those men, but preparing them. And for the next three years after that calling, he was going to be preparing his disciples. They weren't really adding anything at this point in time to his ministry, but when he sends them out, he's doing this in preparing them. And then number five, he sends them out specifically and sovereignly where he wants them to go, both where he does not want them to go and then where he positively does want them to go because the Lord is sovereign over the selection of many calls and over their gifting, over their preparation of their calling, but also the place where they will not go and the place that they will go. God is sovereign over all these things. And number five, those men will be doing the same kind of work that the Lord himself was doing. In fact, if Jesus were here today and we're to be involved in missions, we need to be involved in missions for the kind of missionaries and ministers who will be doing the same kinds of things that Jesus himself would be doing if Jesus were here today. They were preaching the message of the king and the kingdom, and they were doing the works that authenticate that very message. And now we come to the part of the passage that is instructive in the financing the financing of missions. There are two main principles that I want to draw out from the text concerning the financing of, of missions, and they are given to us in a kernel form that will then become the pattern, really, for all of history of missions through the world, even after Pentecost. See, these are in kernel form, and I just want to give you those principles, and we're going to go back and unpack them a little bit. The first principle is this. A minister of the gospel must be willing to go into the ministry without any stipulated support. And number two, those minister to spiritually are obligated to provide for their minister materially. Now those are in kernel form, and I'd like to unpack those a bit more. So let's look at that first principle that is here given to us in kernel form. A minister must be willing to go into the ministry without any stipulated support. The point of what our Lord is driving at here is one of a mindset, one of a spirit. It's a particular outlook about the special calling in the ministry. And I do want us to take some time to unpack this a little bit because there's lots of misunderstanding on this very point from this very passage. So when we go on a trip, one of the things that, that we do as a people when we go on a trip is we begin to prepare for that trip. We begin to purchase things that we may need for that trip. We may begin to start to pack and to uh, get our luggage ready and then we go on our trip. Does this passage prohibit us or missionaries from that kind of thing? Is this a guideline for missionaries so that they do not even take their wallet with them? Now there is a practice that is current today, has been around for some time, for a couple of hundred years anyway, among evangelicals called faith missions that looks to this passage for this very kind of thing. 
That particular practice of faith missions believes that they should not raise any funds for their support, but trust only the Lord's provision. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Missions, was of this persuasion. He looked at this passage to give him his support for his position. Now, while Hudson Taylor and many others in the faith mission persuasion have the right mindset that Jesus is getting at here, they, they had the right mindset, I don't think they were obligated to go to the field without any support. Now, let, let me say this. God may call, indeed, missionaries, and part of Hudson Taylor's calling was probably to do just that. In fact, I think we can look back and say in his situation he was called to go into a field without any support at all. But this passage is teaching us something about the spirit, the willingness. And not expressly mandating a particular method in which every mission should be carried out. So we have to be sensitive to the Lord's calling and biblically guided in that calling. And there will be some who do believe it's their calling to do that. We want to be careful not to raise up a particular model, however, that would be more narrow than what the Scripture holds. And I want to, to show you that for just a moment because I want to show you a passage in Luke 22. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn over there because it's a commentary in retrospect upon this particular passage. And in Luke chapter 22, we'll just take a quick, quick peek there because Jesus is going to refer back to this specific time when he sends them out telling them not to take anything with them on their journey. This was right before he was to go to be crucified, and he is telling them, beginning at verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? He's referring back to this particular time that we are at in Matthew chapter 10. When I sent you out that way, did you lack anything? And then they said, Nothing. We lack nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So what he is saying in Matthew 10 has a very specific reason for why he is doing that. And he's teaching something here. And Luke 22, he says, now it's time to take your wallet and an, even a sword. And if you don't have one, go buy one. He's telling them to take some things now. And two points I want to get out of that particular passage. Number one, the point that Jesus was teaching his disciples in our passage in Matthew 10 is in fact that no matter what, he would provide for them. No matter what, Jesus will provide for them. Did you lack anything? Nothing, Lord. Have you ever lacked anything? And anything I've sent you to do, anything I've ever called you, nothing, Lord. We can look back, and that's what we did, and we can see that we didn't lack a thing. And that's the main point here, that Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus will provide for all the needs wherever he calls us to serve, and we have to have that mindset about us. We have to go in that spirit. But The second thing that I'm extracting even from the Luke 22 passage is Jesus now tells them to 
take their money bags and knapsack and even a sword. And the point here is that we cannot assume that Matthew 10 passage is the paradigm for faith missions and necessitating a mandate that we are to go in the mission field empty-handed. It may be some, or a calling for some, but it cannot be the biblical mandate or the paradigm. So I'm going back to Matthew chapter 10, continuing to unpack this passage on missions financing. So what is Jesus teaching in Matthew 10 when he gives this instruction to them? And the clue of that can be found in verse 8. He says, Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. And I think that last phrase is our clue. Freely you have received, now freely give. That's the guiding principle for us here. What he's specifically referring to is the gospel. They receive the gospel freely, and every minister needs to be committed to making the gospel available without charge. In our day, it's become customary, particularly even for Christian musicians, to sell tickets to demand their expenses to be guaranteed up front. And when they are questioned about this, they will point out that, well, most missionaries and pastors are given compensation, are they not? But the difference between those two is demanding on the front end and setting a price for which you are for hire. And on the other hand, a pastor or a missionary must be willing to go to a place and leave entirely to those people to accept their God-given responsibility in providing according to their own conscience and their own sense of leading about that. Missionaries and ministers who are vocationally called need to have the spirit of this passage. They have been entrusted with a treasure. It has been freely given to them, and they can go wherever God wants them to go and make the gospel available without charge to people. That's critically important today. We have many ministers in pulpits who are in professional careers. I believe it was John Piper that wrote a book on brethren, we are not professionals with this kernel of thought in mind. We are not to peddle the gospel. So the principle that this passage teaches is that a minister or a missionary must be willing to go into the ministry without any stipulated support. He must be willing to. That's the spirit here. Men going into the ministry to be a missionary or a pastor in a vocational calling must be willing to go serve without any financial support guaranteed. Remember, these were men who left their professions. They left their tax collecting, they left their fishing, they left what they had as their source of income and they left it behind and they had no other support than what God would provide for them as a result of the ministry of the gospel. And I think that's implied in Luke 22 when Jesus looks back and asks them, says, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. We found you to be faithful. In other words, the spirit of what Jesus is saying and teaching here is that men who go out into the ministry cannot go out with the clarity of being able to see how they will be provided for. And that's the spirit he's getting at here. 
It would be the wrong spirit to do so. Those going into missions or full-time pastoring, following a vocational call into the ministry, are going to have to reckon with passages just like this. Now, I do want to qualify this some. And I won't have time to fully explore these qualifications. But there are some ministers who are not called and gifted to a vocational calling. That is, perhaps maybe you might call that a full-time ministry. There are some elders who serve a local church, and their calling is more specifically to that local body. And they may have another vocation that provides their income and still serve in a very supportive capacity in that particular calling and role and gifting. There is no biblical mandate that an elder has to receive funds from the church. We see that with Paul when he went to tent making for a season. We also see it when he was in Thessalonica because he wanted to work with his hands. There was a principle that he was trying to teach the people there, and he wanted to show them by example what they needed to be about because they weren't working like they should with their own hands. I do believe there is a vocational calling of a man into the ministry, one who is called, prepared, and sent out, and one that is called more locally designated to a ministry. And I believe there are some distinctions there. And while elders in the church do share parity and they're equal in authority, not all are equally gifted nor similarly called. And that's why some men are vocational full-time elders and pastors and missionaries, while others are not. Now, with that just very brief qualification, I want to get back to the point that pastors and missionaries are going to have to reckon with passages like this as it pertains to their very calling. And I dare say that most of them will be put in a situation that will teach them not only this lesson, but will test their calling in this lesson. When I was about to go off to seminary, I approached my pastor then, who was Pastor Alan Bradshaw. Pastor Bradshaw. And I was telling him what the Lord was doing in my heart. And not really telling him the fear of my heart, but he probably knew it, quotes me from 1 Thessalonians 5.24, to which this, to this very day has a very significant place in my ministry, when he leans across his desk and he says, Marion, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. If the Lord calls you, he will accomplish it. He will provide, he will gift, he will take care of all that needs to be taken care of. And that is a whole lot more than just your monetary needs. When God called me to the ministry and it became very clear in my own life, I obligated myself to follow his call to the point where I didn't even have a job or know how God was going to provide. I was instructed to give about a month's notice to the job that I was then working at Hewlett-Packard so they can provide a way uh, to accomplish the void in my absence at the work, and so I did, and I was trying to find work to provide for my family in the place that I knew was my next step, which was Greenville, South Carolina, and time after time again, nothing came up, nothing came up, and I am 
five days away from my letter of resignation being due. And my manager calls me up and he asks if I would be interested in working part-time in Greenville while I go to seminary. And I said, yes. There was no job position, so he flew down and he created a job title for me, and then he escalated that all the way to corporate in Palo Alto, California for this little no-name person who's going to go into the ministry, and as one of my hiring managers later said, Hewlett Packard, you're the first uh, missionary that they have ever sent out. I had to come to the place where there was a willingness to yield and follow the calling at all expense and not knowing where the bread was going to come from or how it was going to be there. I worked part-time for Hewlett-Packard going through seminary, divested myself of all of my IRA, 401k, and retirement that I could. As we were getting nearer to the close of of graduation, um, all of my savings and everything was depleted. And I only had to depend upon God. It was during those times we tried to work on a budget. The budget never worked. But God would also press upon me to give to a particular need of a missionary who was in far dire straits than I was. And not only did he provide for my need uh, in that, but he blessed me beyond what I could have comprehended. It was like the, the widow's oil that just was not going to run out, but you did not figure out how it was continuing to supply our needs. And you know what? It tested my calling, but I'd never look back. I went to seminary as the first part of my call. That was part of my preparation. Then I went to Atlanta to plant a church. And I said, Lord, now that I've prepared in seminary, I would love to be out full-time in the ministry. Then I don't have to have this vocational, bivocational burden upon me. Lord, if it be your will, would you get me out in the ministry full-time that I can dedicate myself to the work in one year? Well, I was thinking the church would grow to such an extent that the the offerings and tithes coming in from the people would have made up for all of my support by then. Well, that was the way I had figured it out. The Lord did answer that prayer because HP reorganized the very next year and I was out of a job. Had no idea what I was going to do. The church had already been started, but we still had a long ways to go before they were anywhere near getting me in full time in the ministry. At the same time that Hewlett Packard reorganized and I was out of a job, a pastor passed through that way. He was actually the the, the former youth pastor at the church where I had come from. And he was going on a trip to Greenville, South Carolina. And the only time he had ever stopped by, he happens to stop by, take Chesley and I to lunch with his wife. And he starts finding out a little bit about more about our ministry and about us. And um, I never told him what the specific needs were. I never told him what the situation was. I didn't ask for money. But he went on to South Carolina and came back home, and he energized two other contacts who then significantly supported us for the ministry for the next several years that actually I was in ministry full-time with support that supported our needs at a very base level. But nonetheless, I look back and say, I didn't like anything, Lord. I didn't like anything, and I could dedicate myself to the work. There were tests for us in this very principle that Jesus was teaching along the way. We later became reformed. I wrote a letter to two of these supporting works that were continuing to support us at that time. 
who were fundamental Arminian ministries, knowing that that would be the break. But I wanted to come clean, give full disclosure of how God was changing and developing my spirit, my understanding of the scriptures. And they kept supporting us until we could get our legs underneath us and support ourselves. When we moved to Centerville with four families to start all over again, I had no idea how we were going to make it, but I felt God calling me. This was the place that he wanted me next, and we did. We can honestly look back over every step in our calling in the ministry and answer Jesus' question, what did you lack? And I can say, nothing, Lord, nothing. And what a glorious journey it's been. Oh, there were tough times and tight times and prayerful times, but it gets us on our knees and we see that God does own the thousand, uh, cattle on a thousand. He owns it all. And whatever he calls you to do, he is faithful to do it. A vocational minister must be willing to go into the ministry without any stipulated support. There's a test there in what Jesus is principally trying to teach us here. But secondly... There's a second principle in this passage that those ministered to spiritually are obligated to provide for their minister materially. And that's where he says in the end of chapter 10 or verse 10 of our passage, a worker is worthy of his food. He's worthy of his support. That statement is there as an explanation for the prohibition that the minister, the missionary, is not to take with him the gold and the silver and the copper. It is because this provides the explanation of why he doesn't need all those things. He's not going to need those things because God's people to whom he ministers to are going to provide for him. That's the way God designed it. The principle that Jesus was teaching here is that the minister who labors in the ministry is worthy of material support to enable him to further labor. From whom does this support come? And the very parallel passage that we have in Matthew 10, we have over in Luke chapter 10. And he says the same thing there. And he tells the people, don't take, don't, tells his disciples, don't take this, don't take that, don't take this. And then he goes on and Luke adds, and remain in the same house eating and drinking such things as they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the people that are going to be taking care, the provision of God is going to come through the people to whom he's ministering spiritually. And there's a principle that is reiterated a number of times throughout the New Testament. It's actually Colonel Foreman, the Old Testament, that the priests themselves were partakers of the sacrifices and offerings that came from the people that they ministered to. And the New Testament takes that same principle, and even of the ox quotes it twice as it pertains to taking care of ministers. And the people who are ministered to spiritually are obligated to provide for the material needs of the ministers who care for them. The Apostle Paul taught that on several occasions. He, he says in the chapter that we read just moments ago, if we've sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? With the implied answer, well, no, that's the way it ought to be. In Galatians, he instructs, let him who taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. In 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 5, he tells us, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
It's bringing these principles to bear so that there is provision for the gospel to succeed. And we all have a part in that, every one of us. Now, the Bible teaches that it is incumbent for the people who receive spiritual ministering to supply the material needs. Now, I want to bring this around to four applications as the message closes. Your main financial support, here's number one. Your main financial support in the church must always be first directed where you receive your spiritual ministry. In other words, you're obligated to tithe to the local church in order to fulfill that principle here. This is where you're baptized, your children are baptized. This is where you eat at the table. This is where the preaching is heard. So just turning on the TV and saying you went to church and giving your offerings and tithes there does not apply. It's part of the body life. Your main financial support spiritually for the kingdom of God is in the church where you are receiving your spiritual ministry. Now that's part and parcel of the principle that is here given. But let me extend that now to the principle number two. What does it mean for missionaries who go to a foreign field and stay in one place with one people? Part of what we're doing as we're going through this passage is we're gleaning some principles that we can then begin to apply into a missions philosophy, reduce it to writing, that will help us to think how we can be involved in missions, how we should be involved in missions, not only financially, but praying for and, and God to call and sending out and, and, and thinking about our sons and daughters and what God would have for them here domestically and around the world. But what do these principles here in the financing of missions mean for missionaries going into a foreign field and staying at one place with one people? And when we think about missionaries, we think about Paul who goes out from a particular church in Antioch, and he goes throughout a place, and he plants churches as he goes, and the planting of the churches is through the preaching of the gospel, <laughs> Right? The preaching of the kingdom. That's what Paul did. And the preaching of the gospel saves people. Or actually, Jesus saves, but they're showing this is the means through which Jesus is going to save by, by letting people know what the problem is and letting people know who the answer is and addressing people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches are planted, and then they are equipped. And then Paul's on his way to the next and to the next and to the next. That's missions. There does come some exceptional cases where a missionary may go to a foreign land and then feel like this is God's permanent calling for him and he doesn't go to another place. Now, what is the principle there for those particular cases? And it is exactly this very principle that gradually we should be decreasing their support. Because in general, we need to be guided and he needs to be guided and the church there needs to be guided by this principle. And that's true whether we're talking about foreign missions or domestic church planting, that the people who are receiving the spiritual ministry need to work with their hands to give to their minister. And they need to be taught this. They need to be discipled in this. The main idea for missionaries is to move themselves around and equipping the nationals to do the work of the ministry. 
and to be able to teach the nationals this very principle. And missionaries and church planters are equippers of nationals for the work of the ministry and their own native people. But there are exceptions, and I think the exception also applies to this very principle that missionary support should be slowly withdrawn as the church builds there if he decides to stay in that particular place. Number three, there's a third principle here, or application. And this application is that I think we as Americans, this would apply to other countries as well, England and others who've sent out missionaries in the past, though they're probably not as evangelically doing that today. But we as Americans in the evangelical church have to be careful in how we support nationals on the foreign field. In the history of missions, it is proven that long-term financial support from countries like America to foreign nationals is problematic and hindering to the work of the gospel. What I mean by national, if, if we have a particular national who becomes a pastor in, say, India, and he begins shepherding and pastoring a church, pumping American dollars continually and indefinitely and long-term into that particular ministry is actually going to hinder it and not help it. It artificially elevates the standard of living above those to whom he's ministering. It gives him an unnatural power that his fellow brethren do not have. It sometimes is a means of of, of making them fly back and forth, raising more and more money for their particular ministry and projects. It often gives them an independency of accountability from the very field that they minister who really know the work ethic of the minister. But first and foremost, it works against the indigenous principle of church planting. It hinders and not fosters growth. That's why we have to be really careful Occasionally, we do take on a specific project for a national. Just like the Gentile collection that Paul went around, collecting from the Gentile churches to help the famine down in Jerusalem. I think there's a very appropriateness to doing things like this. But we need to be careful not to be giving indefinitely because we can unwittingly undermine the indigenous process in which missions and church planting is designed. We do not want nationals in foreign countries to become dependent on our money for their churches to succeed. Does that make sense? It's a a glorified welfare system. And it goes back to the first principle that we considered from this passage. God will provide what he calls for. And he will do it. From the local sources. A fourth application that we have to be mindful of in in light of that is this. We must be one-minded about how we approach and give to missions. We need to be, as a church, one-minded. The Bible teaches that we are to do good unto all people, especially unto those of the household of faith. But the kingdom funds cannot be dispersed arbitrarily. As we develop a missions philosophy and begin to reduce it to writing, we need some godly missions-minded men to help on a committee to discern the very difficult and challenging problems in how we are to give, to what extent we give, and when knowing not to give. Because if we are not careful, 
There is a distinct possibility of creating a whole system by which people come and externally respond to the gospel primarily because they are interested in having their physical needs met. This happens over and over again. In fact, on the mission field, they call those rice Christians. I want you to know this. When the Lord himself fed 5,000, John's gospel tells us that the very next day, he traveled across the Sea of Galilee. And the very next day, those people come to him. And Jesus knew that they were not coming for the spiritual ministry to their souls, but for the physical nourishment that he had provided to them the day before. And these people walked away from Jesus when they realized there wasn't going to be another free lunch. Jesus did not provide for them that day. And they walked away. They were there for the external physical needs to be met. Churches have to wrestle with many difficult decisions in helping with things like medical supplies and school supplies and unique situations on the field. But it's important to be like-minded in this. Sometimes within a congregation even like our own, people's hearts can be touched about something. And they end up giving or designating their giving in a way that it puts it out from underneath the wise stewardship and the usefulness of the leadership of a church that is acquainted with all the facts. And people who are well-intentioned and well-meaning in doing this can inadvertently and unwittingly actually contribute to something that creates a problem on the field rather than helping it. And there's a lot of missionaries, unfortunately, that are not very clear about that matter on the field. As we wrap up this message, we should be encouraged with a few things for all of us. Number one, personally, for you, God has promised that he will supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. That you will find upon your deathbed and Jesus asking, what did you lack in life? And you're going to honestly say, I lack nothing. He's already told you that from Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you don't have anything to worry about. None of your provision. You have nothing to fear. You seek the kingdom first with your life. And God's going to be the provider. You worry about your standard of living. You worry about where the bills are going to get paid. You worry about your work. But Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And I'm going to take care of you. And he will ask you one day, what would you lack? And you'll say, nothing, Lord. Not a thing. We look back on those seminary days, and they were some difficult days, but they were glorious. They were enriching. They, they were warm memories that we look back to and see God's provision in ways that helped us carry us through all the way to the day. 
And know this too, that God will provide for all of his people, wherever he calls you, whatever he wants you to do. And if there's a young person here today that is considering the possibility that God may one day call you into the ministry to some foreign field, you don't have any of the questions, but just know this right now, that he will provide where he calls you, for what he calls you, and he'll take care of all of those details. So don't let that even be an issue. You will lack nothing. If you're faithful. But he will especially test his vocational ministers with this very principle. But those will be some very sweet times of on your knees, not knowing where the next thing will come. And then in a way you never could have imagined it or thought about it or dreamt about it, God provides an answer that only he can take the glory for. And those are glorious times. Man, those are times you want your children to see about that. Protecting your children from those kinds of things is not a healthy thing. Make sure your children see the works of God in everyday life and point those things out. But yet we all, in the rich American economy, in a rich little church that we are, we have an, an important contribution to make to the mission of Christ all around the world. And the very first thing we need to do is what Jesus says to do, and that is to pray, to pray for the laborers. To pray and to engage with financial means as appropriate. And yet to equip and prepare our young people whether they stay here, whether they go abroad, whether they plan a church domestically, whether they're a deacon in some place in Timbuktu, wherever and whatever they are called to do, it is our heart and prayer that they be raised up, trained, and discipled so that they can stand like the ones in China are doing right now. So that they're taken away from their parents when they're 15 like Daniel was in the Babylon. He has the strength and the courage to know what is right. And folks, we need to start praying for our next generation. I mean, right there. That's who we need to be praying for. That this church will continue. That this church will be faithful. That this church will be that which sends out. That this church will be that which equips. That this church will be for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the growth of his kingdom around the world. Let's pray. Our great King and glorious Savior, who has instructed your people in the truths of your word, we pray you would give us all a spirit of this passage, knowing that we are to seek your kingdom and your righteousness first, and that we are not to worry about where our material needs will come. For you have provided a means for that. And we pray that we would also be a part of the means to be faithful with our tithes and our offerings, that we would work diligently with our hands for the sake of the kingdom and for the provision of ministers and missionaries. We pray for wisdom. We pray for preparation for our young people. We know not what a day may bring forth or even what the state of the church in America will be in 10 years, but you do. May we be faithful today to be praying for them specifically and equipping them with a robust doctrine and theology that they will be able to share. And Lord, we pray you would use this small little ministry 
in rural Tennessee to do mighty things for your great name. So establish the work of our hands, we pray. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And we pray that our King Jesus will be glorified in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.